Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 151 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. This week, I'm recording live from Columbus, Ohio, and we have three cases on this Memorial Day weekend. Our first case is from the Indiana Appellate Court, Red Lobster Restaurants, LLC, et al. versus Frick. Our second case today is John Andron versus End User Consumer Plaintiff Class Action, Seventh Circuit. And the third case is also from the Seventh Circuit, Noldner versus Daniels. Let's turn to our first case today. Quote, you cannot have your cheddar biscuits and eat them too, end quote. And they are delicious if you don't, haven't had them. Uh, you can get the mix at Costco. Uh, my wife often makes them for me. That was, but in any event, that was the quote of the oral arguments begun by counsel for Red Lobster last week before the Indiana Court of Appeals that was on the road in Fort Wayne on their uh, bringing the court to the community as they do in the uh, occasionally at the appellate court level in Indiana. In a case addressing whether a plaintiff is judicially stopped from asserting her tort claim arising from a slip and fall at the restaurant when she did not disclose it in bankruptcy. <clears throat> there are a couple of wrinkles in this case that make it distinct from the numerous cases that have addressed this issue in Illinois. First, the claim did not accrue until after the plaintiff had filed bankruptcy, and so the issue is whether she was timely in disclosing it. Second, if the plaintiff was required to disclose the tort claim, are the bankruptcy forms sufficiently clear for a layperson to understand that a tort claim where no recovery has yet been had needed to be disclosed? This arguably goes to whether the plaintiff had a deceitful motive in not disclosing the tort claim. Third, does it matter that the trustee did not pursue the tort claim unless the bankruptcy estate was not prejudiced? Because even when the trustee had the chance to seek recovery, he chose not to. Fourth and finally, the plaintiff falsely answered an interrogatory in the tort suit that asked if she had filed bankruptcy. Yeah, tell us about oral argument. Thanks, Dan. And this was another case where plaintiff's counsel, in this case an appellee, made an extraordinarily short oral argument. Uh, thinking that I, you know, he may be right, that he, it's a pretty straightforward situation for him. And it's straightforward and distinct from the other situations we've discussed it, most recently on the show in the Dunover versus Clark case from the Illinois Supreme Court, in that, as Dan mentioned, the fall did not occur until after she uh, filed for bankruptcy. And so the question becomes, when do you have to disclose, uh, or what do you have to disclose, uh, the acquisition of an asset to the bankruptcy trustee in the course of the bankruptcy. In this case, it was a year or so after the fall that she filed the, uh, that she amended her bankruptcy petition. And even when she did that, um, it was, uh, the, the trustee didn't take, take the asset and try to pursue it. Um, so does, does that matter? It seems the bankruptcy trustees have a policy of not doing that. I'm not sure why. Uh, why not take over the asset or appoint the 
the plaintiff's lawyer to pursue the asset on your behalf if you don't have the specialty to deal with this kind of a case. It's not that it's, it's a slip and fall case. It's not like it's very complicated. Uh, take it in state court and go take it over and get some money, more money for the creditors. But apparently that's not how the U.S. trustee uh, wants to handle things. So they don't. Um, and so one of the questions from one of the judges, justices was, hold it. I mean, what qualifies as property under the under the bankruptcy? Um, would she have known that a situation where she had a potential claim, but it had not yet you know, turned to cash? Um, would she know that that was property? And there seems to be um, some ambiguity in the document. There's some parts that say, you talk about, do you have the cash? Another part that says, do you have a potential claim? And it's a bit unclear. Counsel for the appellant, Red Lobster, relied principally on a case uh, from the Seventh Circuit written by Judge Easterbrook, who we're going to talk about here in the third segment. Judge Easterbrook taking the position that the plaintiff in these situations has two lawyers, one in the bankruptcy, one in the tort case. They, they're they charged with the knowledge of the lawyers, and the lawyers plainly know that this has to be disclosed, and the failure to do so is a problem. They not only appealed here the, dismiss, the denial of the motion to dismiss under judicial estoppel, they also appealed the, the Red Lobster did, the denial of their motion to strike the plaintiff's uh, affidavit wherein she tried to explain why she falsely answered an interrogatory that specifically asked, have you ever filed bankruptcy? Uh, and she said no. Uh, it asked other questions as well, but she didn't, she specifically said no when she plainly had. Uh, and then she submitted an affidavit to try to explain why in the circuit or the trial court denied that motion. Um, to strike. And so they appealed both of those motions. Procedurally, what makes this case somewhat unique in Indiana is that you could appeal this kind of a thing. A denial of a motion to strike, a denial of a motion to dismiss are appealable if you get authority under under uh, Rule 14b of the appellate rules. Uh, in, in Illinois, you really wouldn't have a way to appeal this unless you got a 304a, or strike that, a 308a certification. Not 304, this is not a final judgment. I was a, I did not, definitely did not mean 304. 308 is what I meant. Uh, you'd have to certify a question. Uh, and this works somewhat like that, but you're not certifying a question. You're certifying the this issue uh, for the court to consider. Uh, I, I can understand why the plaintiff herself may not understand what she needed to have disclosed, but plainly she had counsel who knew that she needed to disclose these things. One of the issues that arose when I posted this on LinkedIn was people, well, why should Red Lobster get to take the get the windfall of this person's mistake or this person's deceit even? Uh, you know, because they're not the ones that were harmed. You know, the slip and fall is a slip and fall. What's it have to do with her line to the bankruptcy trustee? What's it have to do with her line to the court? Well, everything, because judicial estoppel is about the integrity of the judicial system. It, it's yes, it can lead to a windfall to the defendant, sure. But that's not the interest the judicial the doctrine of judicial estoppel is intended intending to protect. What it's intending to protect is the judicial system itself uh, from people uh, pulling shenanigans like this. So that's why one of the factors you look at is was the person acting in a deceitful fashion when they either when they they took this inconsistent position or they they did some kind of alleged shenanigans that manipulate uh, their claim to have manipulated the system. Um, 
it, the other thing in this case is what benefit did she get by not disclosing this when the trustee didn't take it? One of the elements of judicial estoppel is you have to show that the party who took this inconsistent position got a benefit by their action. And what benefit did she get? And the argument is, well, she got to not have to disclose the asset. She didn't have uh, her creditors going after. Well, the trustee didn't take it. So, you know, what uh, maybe the trustee would have taken a different position at, earlier in the case. I, I don't know. But uh, it's hard to see the benefit situation. This was not a situation where, um, you know, unlike Dunover, where the the filing of the bankruptcy was arguably, you know, protected him from his creditors. She had already filed when this accident when this accident occurred. Um, so it, that really didn't uh, didn't matter. And the, this it, it, the dynamics is slightly different in this case, and perhaps dispositively so. Uh, Dan, uh, what are your thoughts on this case? Well, Pat, I think you raised a couple of good things, uh, really uh, important facts here. She had not just one attorney, but two. She had one for a tort and one for a bankruptcy. So like you said, whether whether a layperson reading these forms, I can see if it was a pro se case. Uh, as, as you know, I'm doing a lot of consumer cases in AAA, and a lot of those are pro se, and so sometimes they need extra hand-holding. They don't quite get what the process is or things. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing, like you said, and uh, it's been mysterious to me over time too, is why the trustees don't often go after these types of assets or potential assets. You would think as part of a, a an estate, you're trying to address as much of the uh, debtors, uh, you know, creditors as you can, right? And so when you go out and, uh, and collect and uh, inventory and have control over every asset that's part and parcel of the estate that could have potentially assist in the endeavor. So, so but uh, like you said, they don't they don't go after those for some reason. And uh, not sure why. They don't but, even appoint the plaintiff's lawyers to do it on behalf of the trustee, which they right. do. I've seen that happen before. You know, I, I was like, you know, any money is better than none. I mean, the, the creditor, I mean, yes, bankruptcy is designed to protect the debt. Sure. But the creditors should be at least have an opportunity to have some chance to be made whole. Um, this would this asset potentially could tend to make them whole, uh, well, or at least help. I don't know how far in debt she was. It may turn out that the case is so valuable she isn't insolvent at all. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I wonder if there's some argument that plaintiffs lawyers wouldn't take these cases if that was the case, right? Because what's what's in it for them if it? Well, the trustee would still have to pay them their fee. They don't have to work. They're not. They're not. They have to well, work for free, right? That would not trump their their engagement yeah. letter that, yeah. that, that has a you know that has them getting not only the fees, you know, I'm sorry, the cost that they advance, but also their fee. I don't think the trustee would get a. He doesn't get to get the plaintiff's lawyer to work for free. That's true. Uh, the plaintiff's lawyer shouldn't have to do that. Uh, he should he should be able to work for his fee. And if he chooses in order to facilitate settlement to cut his fee, that's up to the lawyer. But he, he the trustee has to pay the market rate. And the market rate for work like this is at least a third plus cost. Um, so I, I would think that I, I, even still, even if you spend, let's say, 40% on the fees plus costs, you're at 40%. That's still 60% of whatever the recovery is. And even if it's nominal, that can help pay off the trustee, help pay off the creditors. Yeah, um, yeah. Even if the plaintiff doesn't get anything, at least the creditors get something. Uh, yeah. I, I don't understand why they don't take the asset, but they don't. And yeah. So, like I said, it, it, yeah, I just wonder if there's some, some some policy position or something. 
I'll, I'll maybe look into it because it's, it's intriguing to me why they don't. Yeah, I would think that their job is to collect all the assets they can, and this is certainly an asset. Right. Personal injury, your recovery, depending upon the case, can, as I say, make the person not insolvent. Uh, maybe it's the view that it has nothing to do with what got them in debt in the first place, That's especially cool. in a case like this where it occurred. It, 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 well, you can look at it two different ways. If it occurred before they filed bankruptcy and it might have been the reason for the bankruptcy, they weren't able to pay their bills and whatnot, their rent and so forth, or their mortgage. If it happens afterwards, you're handicapping their ability to, to get themselves back on their feet. And right. so it should stay. It has nothing to do, or it may have been the cause for the bankruptcy in the first place. That may be the reason. Um, yeah. I, I can I, I can see that argument. Uh, I may be talking myself into this. Uh, I can see this argument being made that this really isn't, you know, somebody gets in a car accident, someone slips and falls, someone's a subject of a product liability, you know, suffers an injury as a result of a, an allegedly uh, defective product. Uh, that has nothing to do with what got them into the bankruptcy or maybe the reason they got into bankruptcy in the first place. Right. Um, because they didn't, weren't able to afford the medical bills, they were uncovered and so forth. You know, who, who knows? But I, I can see that might be the reason. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so with that, we'll take our first break and come back with a Seventh Circuit case uh, in class actions. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment two of episode 151. And what is the proper fee award in a $181 million settlement of class counsel in a nationwide antitrust action? The district court held that it was 33% or an excess of $59 million plus costs of over $5 million. And John Andrean objected. The Seventh Circuit heard oral argument this past week. The objector, represented by Ted Frank of the Hamilton Lincoln Law Institute Center for Class Action Fairness, and a frequent uh, objector in these things, yep. uh, argued, among other things, that in the Ninth Circuit there is a 25% benchmark, and that under the Seventh Circuit's market mimicking approach to fee determination, a fee of 33% is too high, where plaintiff's counsel continue to file in the Ninth Circuit, where they often get even less than the 25%. The class, represented by Steve Berman, a, a, an accomplished uh, class action litigator in his own right, uh, of Hagen's Berman, Sobel, Shapiro LLP in, uh, in Seattle, argued that the district court undertook a thorough analysis of the work done by, the, by class counsel, i.e. him, uh, and it did not abuse its discretion in making the fee award. Um, this is a bit this is a uh, a bit esoteric, but really important when you're talking about it. And you know, I look through the docket. They talk. I, I didn't look through this docket because apparently there are over seven thousand entries in the docket. Yes. Um, Judge uh, Judge Sykes commented on that. Uh, Dan, why don't you tell us about the oral arguments? Thanks, Pat. And uh, as you mentioned, they they brought up the uh, Ninth Circuit. Uh, one of the things that I think uh, was really a focus in this very brief oral argument, as we talked about, uh, for some reason, at times, uh, 
there doesn't seem to be a, a regular clock in this uh, in the Seventh Circuit, depending on what the case is. This was uh, waiting in about 22 minutes, I think. Was it something like that, or yeah? Was, we're talking about another... sixty million dollars at stake here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it's in a plainly, plainly, the amount of argument is not based upon the amount of money at stake. <laughs> and and they, you know, the interesting thing is, is it's a lot of money, no matter how you slice it. Uh, this, uh, if it was, if it was fifty nine million, you know, twenty five percent would be about forty five million thereabouts, somewhere in that neighborhood. So you're still talking a lot of money. Uh, one of the things that I think. Uh, was trying to be distinguished is is that uh, these antitrust cases are much more complex than your garden of variety class actions, and so they're much more sophisticated. As you said, the class counsel himself uh, argued that this was sophisticated work uh, and that antitrust work is much more difficult than your garden variety uh, class actions for you know whatever. Um, the, uh, uh, the, uh, ninth circuit, as you mentioned, has, has a different test. Uh, the seventh circuit, uh, does not necessarily follow it. I don't know if other circuits do, Pat. I don't know if you're familiar with whether, whether other circuits follow the ninth circuits, but it's a 25%, like you said, and it's kind of a starting point, but usually they go down. It sounds like not up. Um, one of, uh, the interesting things that, that you mentioned is, is the district court judge in this case. Uh, it sounds like, and we've had cases like this before, right? We're on appeal. They're arguing that the, the district court just erred in, in applying whatever analysis or got it wrong. Uh, but a, as you mentioned in this case, Pat, 7,000 records. And according to uh, Berman, the district court judge looked at each of those documents, each, each entry in the thing, looked at the work done, uh, looked at the, the, the entire uh, kind of package. Um, the uh, appellant came out of the box and said the, the district court in adjudicating these fee disputes has responsibility to construct what sophisticated parties uh, would, have, uh, would have been appropriate and that the $57 million, as you mentioned in this case, uh, contravenes that methodology. Uh, the uh, other thing that was happening here, and that, that might be somewhat relevant, is in, it's in related cases between 2010 and 2016. Uh, this uh, Class Action Council was agreeing to similar types of cases and was agreeing, according to appellant, to accept 10 to 15% uh, fees in those uh, sophisticated cases. Um, and you and I have had discussions before, Pat, in some of these cases, in bankruptcy cases, we just talked about a bankruptcy case and, and the United Airlines bankruptcy and some of those, it's eye-popping what the fees are in some of these uh, massive cases. And so uh, I, I think here, you know, the, the, the question will be whether or not the, the district court judge, uh, and I believe it was Durkin in this uh, case, uh, again, he looked at 7,000 documents. Uh, he had a lot of time to think it over. He wrote a very detailed uh, opinion and analysis in awarding the uh, 33% and the $59 million in fees. And so I think it'll be interesting to see how uh, the Seventh Circuit operates in this case. Uh, from the questioning, I'm not sure that the appellants going, you know, got the, the better end of this argument, but 
I think it'll be interesting to see if the, the Seventh Circuit considers uh, adopting or modifying the award to be more consistent with the Ninth Circuit. The issue here for the appellant more than anything is the standard review. Right. It's where you have a long opinion setting forth his reasoning. It's hard to find abuse of discretion. Um, the court, the district court has discretion. And the question is, did he abuse his discretion in doing what he did? And when you have a long opinion like this, it's hard to argue that it was an abuse of that discretion. I think that's the biggest problem that the, that the appellant has. Were this a de novo review? It might be a much different. Uh, it might be a much different outcome. I agree. But given given the standard of review, which there's no dispute about, um, the the objectors have got a have got a problem. I think. I think so. So with that, we'll come. We'll take our next break and come back with a Nodler versus Daniels, also from the Seventh Circuit. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 151 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Is there a federal constitutional violation committed by guards in the county when they fail to detect and take action when a guard has consensual sex with an inmate where state law makes it clear that an inmate cannot consent under those circumstances? That is the question to be addressed when the Seventh Circuit decides Noldner versus Daniels. Uh, Judge Easterbrook did not think so, and Pat will get into this. Uh, it, it, it was, hey, you he, left out the acronym. Oh, yeah, B, BTW. <laughs> Judge Easterbrook sure did not think so. Uh, for those that uh, take a sip, for those following the game at home, and uh, wait until Pat tells you about uh, Judge Easterbrook was in rare form, to say the least. Uh, wasn't buying any of it. And it's one of those where you almost feel bad for the for the. Uh, advocate. Uh, the district court granted summary judgment to the individual guards, finding that they were entitled to qualified immunity and to the county on the basis that a reasonable jury could not find it liable. The district court, like the parties, seemed to assume that the sexual relations between the inmate and the guard was a constitutional violation, and so they did not appear ready to address that line of questioning posed by Judge Easterbrook. In classic Seventh Circuit fashion, he quoted from the recent Twitter opinion from SCOTUS, that nonfeasance is not violative of the law. Yet, our legal system generally does not impose liability for mere omissions, inactions, or nonfeasance, although inaction can be culpable in the face of some independent duty to act. The law does not impose a generalized duty to rescue. Pat, tell us what our argument in this case. Thanks, Dan. And so this is, we've talked about the Seventh Circuit several, you know, many times, obviously, on the show. And this is one of those couple of the classic things occurring at the Seventh Circuit. Number one, be ready for things you didn't brief. Uh, that's sometimes why they ask for our argument. And let's, let me explain what I mean in that case. This was so far out of left field. 
from the perspective of the advocates that not even a Pelley's counsel, who Judge Easterbrook's line of questioning helped, was prepared for it in such a way that she it took her a minute to understand that, well, you're right, Judge, I'll take the win. What she should have just said is, you're right, Judge, we should have made that argument, and, and right. we win. Uh, instead, she tried to push back and say, well, of course, having sex with an inmate isn't right. But Judge Easterbrook kept coming back to, where does it say that when it's consensual? When it's non-consensual, you have a Fourth Amendment violation. Easy. Right. No right. problem. You, you took, you took, uh, um, you know, you took hold of the person. Fine. Easy. But in this circumstance, it was consensual. Everyone agrees it was consensual. So where's the Fourth Amendment violation? It only be due process violation. If the person was not, uh, you know, competent for some reason, you know, then sure. then well, again a different case. Right. Then a different case, right? Because yeah, consent again, would have been again yeah. a different case. A mentally yeah. handicapped person a minor, something like that, then you can see that. But this is a person is unable to consent only under state law by dint, you know, there's not a, that the only reason why this person is not able to consent is because the state says they're not able to consent. Um, because the guard was a female um, and she, you know, had control over him, obviously. Uh, and so, so he just was like, I get that it's a state law violation. That doesn't make it a federal law violation. Where is the where is the 1983 action? Um, he just wasn't having any of it, and so that was with regards to the person who or the guard who had sex with the guard or with the with the inmate rather. And then you have the uh, there's a Monell claim with regards to the uh, county itself because it's occurred in a county facility. And there are claims against the other guards who apparently are alleged not to have followed procedure. And the court, that's where the quote from Twitter came in. This is the other lesson for getting ready for the Seventh Circuit. I never would have thought that an internet, what amounts to an internet free speech case, would have come up in a 1983 case about consensual sex between a guard right. and an inmate. <laughs> uh, but Judge Eastbrook's right. I mean, the Supreme Court, because it turned out that the Twitter, we're going to talk about Twitter and uh, uh, Google here in a minute. Uh, they, they, we all thought this was going to be a 230 case. Nope. Right. <laughs> Nothing to do with it. They didn't even reach it. They, they, they found that on the 80 to Betty issue, that you just isn't a cause of action under the, uh, under the Anti-Terrorism Act. And so there is no 80 and abetting. And so consequently, um, there, there was no cause of action in the first instance uh, that Twitter and Google are supposed to help not allow ISIS and other terrorists to spread their their propaganda. And so likewise, the judge says here, Judge Easterbrook says here, you have no duty. These guards did have no duty to protect this or uh, to rescue this inmate from the consensual relationship that he was having with this guard. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Didn't expect to have those two issues related to each other, but here we are. So again, uh, be ready for things that you you may not have briefed and new things that might have come down, whether it's from the Seventh Circuit or from the Supreme Court. Um, uh, yeah. You know, Judge Easterbrook's very clear. says, yes, we got lots of cases with sex with inmates. We get that. That's a problem. But those are rapes. Those are non-consensual. That's not this. Right. Um, and so this makes it really very different. 
Um, so we're not so sure. Now, I don't know if his colleagues on the panel were, uh, he was the one that was really pressing this issue, what made this argument really rather entertaining. I will say that he, he at least didn't tell them as he did in a recent episode we discussed where he said, all right, we're done here. We need to get right? the kind of answer that he wanted. That was terrible. Been, this has been a growing trend of his where yeah. he will he will zero in on where is the violation. He is drawing this again from what the people he calls his superiors, the Supreme Court, following Bruin. And he says, hold it. What is the right? What defines the right? Historically, you know, traditionally, what's the right? That's what they've told us where we're supposed to look. You haven't come up with it. If they haven't said it, in the, the, our bosses haven't said it, you can't do it. This is his, his view. Is that how you – that's how I heard him explain it in the other yep. cases. That, that's, where he's, that's where he's going. And so if you've got a – if you have got a 1983 case or any case that implicates a right that you believe is protected under the federal constitution, you better have something. Right. Um, you better have a case. You better have a specific provision of the of the federal constitution you know where someone is you know has been well typically it's gonna be under the fourth amendment someone is seized improperly um that's what made this case different there wasn't a improper seizure there was you you can't have an improper seizure where the person signed up for it which is what happened here so uh i I think this is part of a broader trend um in at least the way judge easterbrook is viewing these things and I don't think you can discount his uh, influence on uh, on the Seventh Circuit, despite its uh, radical change in composition with a, a bunch of new appointees, both from the Trump administration and certainly the Biden administration. Um, they've added a lot of justices, or sorry, justices, a lot of judges, and uh, but his influence and uh, uh, on the court, I think, is still quite uh, uh, quite present. Uh, yep. certainly an oral argument in this. He has for, a way to dominate an oral argument. For, for sure. And, and, and in uh, that regard, he, he even recognized that. He said, you don't have any time, but I asked you a lot of questions, counsel, so I'll give you two minutes because I took up most of your time. So very he generous, recognized right? that he had done it. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's I mean, for, for t- having taken senior status a while ago, he's he's very active. Judge Bauer before him was very active. Right. You know, the... the uh, the, the, the most recent uh, form, former uh, chief judge, uh, Diane Wood, will uh, not be as active. She I, I, uh, she took over as director of the American Law Institute, and at the uh, at, at the annual meeting uh, last week, in Washington D.C., I think she mentioned that I think that she's got a year or something, and then she'll uh, retire from the bench. I think is the goal. I thought that's what I think I heard, and, and that's what I think was always been a plan because. Is, is full, she's the first uh, sitting judge to be uh, appointed as the director of, of the ALI. Um, I think that's it's a full-time job. I mean, it's, it's a full-time job, and uh, even even for a person that isn't at the end of their career, as she as she, um, she she's she's she's, she's, uh, you know, she's nearer the end of her career than she is at the beginning. It's certainly. Oh, uh, for, for for real. I mean, I, it, that was my first meeting, and just watching. How the how the uh, paint is made or the sausage is made and the the amount of time and energy that goes into that oh my god you know and uh, so you're right so but in any event uh, Easterbrook's still there uh, acronyms are bad uh, a lot of other things are bad 
<laughs> you know, there was another argument we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about this week. It was a coverage case. It was kind of obscure, and I didn't want to talk about it. They referred to the insurance company by an acronym, and Judge Easterbrook didn't say anything about that. You know, they said it's, you know, XYZ insurance company, and I'm going to refer to them as XYZ. And I didn't hear a comment. I don't know why. It was like, you know, I, I okay, I guess it's okay when it's an insurance company. I didn't understand what the, why there was no objection. Or maybe he's just, you know, I, he can't imagine he's gotten tired of it. I well, he also, doesn't like him. Remember the other case we covered a while back where it was uh, the initials and it was not a minor. Remember that case as well? You're going to immediately disclose who it is. It's going exactly. to be amended. <laughs> so, yeah. so who knows? Maybe it just slipped. Maybe it slipped by him once. Who knows? Yeah, he had a couple cases like that in the last month or so where the people had just had proceeded under a pseudonym without having gotten authority from either the district court or the Seventh Circuit. And he's like, I didn't find an order that lets you do that. You're going to disclose who this is because you can't just proceed under a pseudonym. This is not how we operate. Um, so. Uh, Again, uh, a very interesting argument. It'll be interesting. It'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see how how the court deals with this. Which brings us to yep. our bi for COVID. Um, not much happening this week, but we'll keep it on the docket. Uh, keep an eye on these things. Yep. Lots of predictions sure to go wrong this week. Yep. Um, so Dan is two twenty fifty one and fourteen. I am two seventeen fifty four and fourteen. Uh, Sour versus CTA from Judge Hyman. We discussed on episode 148. Dan, why don't you tell us about uh, this case that we uh, predicted correctly was going to get an affirmation of the dismissal? Yeah, this this was uh, a Freedom of Information uh, Act request, as, as listeners may recall, uh, where uh, the address was not correct in the document, and uh, and uh, there were two amended complaints. The argument. Uh, in this case of the plaintiff was that the FOIA request was noticed upon CTA and Justice Simon and Lavin both were incredulous. They said, really, there's 8,000 8, or whatever employees of CTA and you're telling us that we, you could send a thing anywhere in the company and that's noticed. It's kind of, Pat, you, you've probably seen that argument sometimes in insurance cases where someone gives notice of a claim, but they give it to, you know, just some, you know, some schmo, and and uh, and then they, you know, uh, the, the insurance company uh, denies. So, uh, in this case, both of the parties agreed that the statute of limitations barred uh, the second amended complaint, unless it related back to her original complaint. Uh, she contended the relation back doctrine applies on this pre-litigation FOIA request, and other correspondence from her attorney informed the CTA of the correct location. Uh, the first district disagreed and affirmed the trial court. They said that even if the FOIA request put the CTA on notice, uh, which it did not, that was in the opinion it said, which it did not, uh, the court, uh, Michael Hyman, uh, for the court said the CTA cannot be deemed to have known the correct location because Sauer provided conflicting information on the location in both the original and First Amendment complaint. So again, it's a drafter's uh, you know, error and it was the same law firm. I think it was appealing, right? They'd had some transition with COVID and stuff, but a lesson, as we talk about all the time in this show, you, you better know what your facts are and, and procedurally and at each step, uh, because if you get it wrong, you, you might have an issue on your hands like this one where, where you don't get justice for your client. Indeed. 
and then we have uh, Twitter versus Tamna and Gonzalez versus Google that we discussed in episode 137. We got these both right. Uh, talked about those just a moment ago, but the, the thrust, we thought these were going to be Section 230 cases. They turned out to be aiding and abetting cases. The decision was unanimous, written by Justice Thomas. Um, and essentially, they say they haven't made out a cause of action. The Twitter decision is long. The Gonzalez decision essentially amounts to a dig. It's basically, see Twitter, we're not dealing with this. Uh, the, the Google case had come out in favor of Google. Yep. Um, and so they just went with, they said, just see Twitter, basically. Dan, anything to add to these? And they, 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 they really punted onto the 230, like you said, and they said they sent it back to the Ninth Circuit and said, you know, consistent with, with the other case. But like you said, there's nothing in that case that talks about 230. So I think the Ninth Circuit's going to be starting from scratch when it determines or we'll see this again because there's other 230 cases. This is a big enough issue. We've talked about it on the show before. It's, it's not going away with, the, with this. Uh, but for now, uh, the Supreme Court has not addressed 230 and what they want to do it with it. It leaves open the possibility that someone could plead a theory of right. aiding and abetting that right. would meet the standard, but they just didn't do it here. And it's um, a pretty pretty high hurdle. I, th I think is. you're right, but it's going to be a high hurdle. It is. Uh, which brings us to our next case uh, from the Illinois Appellate Court 3rd District, MIC General Insurance versus Hextall. We discussed on episode 113. So this took nine months for them to write these eight pages. Um, pretty straightforward case. Husband is excluded under uh, an undisclosed op undisclosed vehicle exclusion of the underinsured motorist policy. The wife has a loss of consortium claim. And the trial court said the husband can't collect, but the wife can. And the appellate court said, no, neither of you can, can collect. Uh, and it uh, so it affirmed on the husband and reversed on the wife. And the reason why the wife can't collect is because her claim is derivative of the husband's claim, and therefore there um, there's no claim for either of them. And it upheld that the, the propriety of the exclusion. So uh, an interesting a case of first impression there, uh, and an interesting matter. Which brings us to Tyler versus Hennepin County that we discussed on episode 147. Didn't take them long to pump this one out. Also unanimous. This is the first opinion this term by Justice Chief Justice Roberts, correct, Dan? It is, it is. So this case yep. deals with, this was a case that deals with the lady in Minnesota who uh, the state claimed abandoned her property. She had, they had $15,000 she owed in taxes and penalties. They sold it for 40. They kept the, the extra 25, and the state, uh, represented by Neil Kotchall, argued that there was no standing. The court brushed that aside. Hold it. If you had given her the 25, she could have used that to pay down her debts. She has standing. Then they, they, they dealt with that in very short shrift, and then they got to, and this is a taking. They didn't get to whether this was an excessive fine. They said, no, this is a taking. Uh, it's, it's what it was at the founding. It's what it was through the through the through the passage of the Fourteenth Amendment. You can't take that. This will affect things in Illinois because Illinois is one of the bad batch of states that does this. We've yep. discussed one of the cases where this happened, Gillis versus City of Rockford, where they didn't raise this argument, but I think they might now uh, because in this case, that case, they're talking about oh, keeping yeah. a whole lot more than twenty-five thousand dollars, ten times that amount. Yep, are in that range. So. 
Uh, we got that one right. Uh, what we got wrong, Dan? Uh, Safeco versus Blue Sky. This was the um, uh, spoliation case we discussed on episode 149. Uh, why don't you tell us about this decision? Sure, and this was the case where Safeco had filed suit against Mike, 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 Mike Ellis. Mike Ellis Corporation, uh, which was a third party uh, renovation company that uh, allegedly uh, had spoiled evidence. Uh, of a, a dehydrator and uh, they they discarded the evidence and part of the reason was is that they said that there was a big delay with Safeco um, you know approving the, the claim or, or to proceed and then they needed to move forward. Michaelis moved to dismiss the, the Safeco's claims of third-party spoliation and negligence uh, arguing that third-party claims for spoliation of evidence are only available and narrow limited circumstances in Indiana, and that the claims that Safeco made did not fall within those limited circumstances. Uh, they also argued that Safeco's negligence claim was barred by the economic loss doctrine. Uh, the trial court had granted Michaelis's motion and dismissed both of the claims. The uh, Surprisingly, and I think we, 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 we obviously got this wrong, but uh, we, we thought uh, that uh, that they would not rule in favor of Safeco's pleadings being sufficient to survive, uh, but they reversed and remanded. They said that Safeco had at least alleged a theory of third-party spoliation. And when we covered this case on the Podium and Panel podcast, uh, there was distinction, and you and I were a bit, I think both of us had never really focused on it, but a distinction between first-party spoliation and third-party spoliation, and what exactly, how you would even get to a third-party spoliation claim or um, but in any event, the Indiana Appellate Court, uh, uh, we'll, we'll see more on this, and we'll probably see this again uh, in, in several months as it pops its way back up the, up the, up the route. What was important is, is that this was, most of the cases had been on summary judgment or after trial, whereas this one was on a motion to dismiss, and so the question was, had they pled enough just to get to a jury, or at least to summary judgment, and they found that they had. So I think the, pro the procedural posture had a lot to do with, uh, with the outcome of this case. Uh, which brings us to Sanders versus Orbitz, which I discussed uh, on episode 146. We didn't make a pick, but we should discuss it anyway. Uh, that case dealt with a situation of whether there is uh, contribution amongst joint tortfeasors on claims made under the uh, Illinois Human Rights Act, and the appellate court said that there was. This is the case, as you recall, where counsel for the plaintiff could not answer the question, what's a tort? That's um, right. Uh, and I was glad to see that in the opinion, they used the definition of tort that I used on the show, which is a civil wrong that isn't a breach of contract. They added in, and that causes damages. I kind of assumed that it causes damages because all civil cases have to include some kind of damage. But a civil wrong that isn't a, that isn't, uh, a breach of contract. So uh, I'm glad that my law school education, at least for one day, served me right. Uh, <laughs> Which brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong this week, Dan. I didn't forget them. I know. Uh, I, I was uh, I was waiting for it, but I did not. <laughs> Thankfully, one of us was, but I did not forget. Uh, Red Lobster. That's going to get affirmed. It's going to get affirmed, and go eat those cheddar biscuits. Exactly. John A. Andrean's getting affirmed. Affirmed. And Nodler is getting affirmed, but on different grounds. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, affirmed across the across the board here. 
Yep. Which brings us to our rule of the week, Dan. Why don't you introduce this for us? Sure, Pat. And uh, the rule of the week this week, get to it, is predicting how justices will decide. Uh, this is something uh, you raised uh, last week and uh, for, for our rule of the week from our friend, Dr. Adam Feldman of Empirical SCOTUS. Uh, why don't you tell us more? And it, and it sure seems like, uh, and I commented on on his post, that this seems like our show, the prediction sure to go run that we just covered. Uh, we, based on the oral arguments, try to tell what different levels of appellate courts in Illinois, Indiana, the Seventh Circuit, and the Supreme Court, and occasionally elsewhere, how they uh, might decide based on what we hear at oral arguments. So why don't you tell us about this analysis by Adam? Yeah, so he cites to a study that essentially says that you can predict what judges are going to do based upon the uh, oral arguments. And, uh, you know, everyone will tell you it's always a dicey proposition, and I would agree, based upon what we call the uh, uh, the prediction sure to go wrong, because we recognize that this is a dicey proposition. Our record, I will proudly say, indicates perhaps not. Um, I, I, I would like to chalk that up to our skill, but maybe it's just just some dumb luck. I think close to 75% is not dumb luck, but maybe. Uh, the, uh, but it's the idea that judges and justices often, you know, tell you where they're going with their, with their opinion, or sorry, with their questions and oral argument, the comments that they make. Uh, and you know some of the some are better poker players than others. We've discussed that, uh, but in the main, I think they ask you can by the tone, by the kinds of questions that they ask. Very seldom do they already ha- don't they do they not already have an idea of where they're headed. Right, uh, they're people too. It turns out um, sometimes they're a bit. Sometimes they don't ask any questions. We've had that happen before. Uh, like we had Ellsworth versus Allstate oh, many months ago, where they didn't ask any questions. Uh, but you also have situations where they generally are struggling, and they'll ask uh, probing questions of both sides. They also might ask those questions to try to figure out how far the uh, others, you know, how far an argument goes. You really, how far are you willing to take this? Um, and sometimes they'll say, you know, okay, you're really willing to go all the way. Um, and what's the implication of going all the way? Uh, to try to figure out how, how they're going to write the opinion. You'll hear them sometimes say, well, how am I supposed to write this opinion? Okay, if I agree with you, what's that going to look like? Right. Um, because it's I have to look at not just this case, but other cases. I have to look at the next case, and how do I write that opinion to give guidance to, to lower courts and to litigants uh, to guide their to guide their actions? So, a very uh, a, 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 right up the alley of what we do on the show. And so I thought that was an appropriate rule of the week. That's not really a rule. Uh, we've expanded the definition of rule. And uh, we're allowed to. We host the show. That's uh, right. So with that, uh, Dan, I think that's all we have for this week. Go it enjoy is. the concerts uh, Thank you. there in Columbus. And we'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter. And on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, We thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel.
each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.